This morning we will begin a new series, a series entitled Ten Words. We will be looking at God's law, the law of God. Specifically, in the weeks to come, we're going to look at each of the Ten Commandments, but before then we have a few weeks of preparation So this morning we will look at God's law as a multi-purposed tool. We'll do a summary overview of the law of God in the Bible. So if you'd like to turn to Psalm 119, we are going to look in just a moment at verse 97. Our key words for our worshipers in training are law, tool, and moral. There's a book that perhaps you saw published several years ago called The Day America Told the Truth. It was a group of researchers that polled thousands of Americans in an anonymous survey and asked them to be as truthful as possible. And amongst those who identified themselves as evangelical Christians, they identified the Ten Commandments that people actually live by. Here's a few examples. 77% of those polled said, I don't see the point in observing the Sabbath. 74%, I will steal from those who won't really miss it. 64% said, I will lie when it suits me so long as it doesn't cause any real damage. 54% said, I will drink and drive if I feel that I can handle it. 53% said, I will cheat on my spouse. After all, given the chance, he or she would do the same. 50% said, I will procrastinate at work and do absolutely nothing about one day out of every five. These are very telling numbers considering in these polls that 80% of Americans say that they believe in God. And yet, of those 80%, 93% of them say that they and nobody else determine what is not, what is and is not moral in their own lives. They base their decisions on their own experiences, even on their own daily whims. Of those identified as evangelical Christians, only 55% of them knew that the golden rule isn't one of the Ten Commandments. Another poll they took. What are you willing to do for $10 million? 25% said they would abandon their entire family. 23% said they would become prostitutes for a week or more. 16% said they would leave their spouses. 10% would withhold testimony and let a murderer go free. 7% would kill a stranger And 3% would put their children up for adoption. Over and over again, multiple surveys of people 
show that professing Christians and non-Christians alike statistically answer questions about morality, greed, hedonism, and racism almost exactly the same. So while we would look at that and say that certainly says something about their profession of faith, we must admit that it is very troubling. While many professing Christians will put a sign in their front yard with the Ten Commandments and very vocally express their desire to see the Ten Commandments posted in schools and in courtrooms, actually following those Ten Commandments is a completely different story. Scott Bass told us on Wednesday night he saw a business sign recently that read, In God We Trust, open seven days a week. Perhaps you saw on Facebook this week, I posted a small statement in preparation for this morning. Obeying the Ten Commandments and insisting others do the same is not legalism. The commandments are not tradition from men, but revelation from God. Immediately, two responses. The first, let the stoning begin. The second, I have questions and commentary on this post. If you'd like to discuss, it's not a synonym for debate, though if you'd like to, I would probably oblige. Please feel free to message me. You bet. Actually calling people to uphold the Ten Commandments is typically met with a completely different response. Immediately, there are accusations of legalism and archaic thinking that arise. Only God can judge me. Or those were just for back then. Or one of my favorites. Well, that's from the Old Testament. It doesn't apply to us today. So what do we do with the law of God? Is it primitive, outdated, Old Testament stuff that doesn't apply to Christians? Or all of mankind for that matter? Or does it? What do we do with God's law today? And perhaps a bigger question that we must consider. What do we do with the law of God throughout all the Bible? How do we interpret it? And how do we determine what is and is not applicable to us? Am I allowed to wear clothes made from more than one fabric? Can I boil a goat in its mother's milk? Can I steal or murder to get ahead? How does anyone determine if one law is to be followed and another one isn't? Why are we not sacrificing bulls and goats and rams this morning? These are all very good questions. So today we're going to talk about the use of God's law. And in the weeks ahead, we'll look at the dangers of legalism and antinomianism. We will talk about the law and the Holy Spirit. And then we will look at each of the Ten Commandments. So look with me at Psalm 119 and verse 97. And I believe this should be the banner verse over all that we will talk about in the weeks ahead. Psalm 119 verse 97 The psalmist David writes, Oh, how I love your law. 
It is my meditation all the day. Very simple statement with so much to be revealed. From the very beginning of creation, we see that God did not create man to be autonomous. Man is not free to be a law unto himself, but rather we are bound to keep the law of our maker. Now, one of the things we need to understand is that God's law is not a hardship or a weight on the backs of an enslaved people under the rule of a tyrannical God. But rather, God's laws are constructed that any man who follows them in grateful obedience will find their greatest joy. The essential elements of faithful Christianity, duty and delight, they will come together just as they did in Jesus as we look rightly at the law of God. This was the heart of David. Oh, how I love your law. Can you say that? Do you love the law of God? I hope by the end of our series you can say that with absolute confidence. You love the law of God. You know, it seems common in evangelical circles to ask questions like this. What's wrong with our generation? What's the deal with young people today? And it seems as we get older, we think back to a supposed golden era when everything seemed right in the world. The problem with that kind of thinking is that there was only one golden era, and unfortunately it only lasted for about two chapters in the Bible. Society today is doing the exact same thing that societies have always done since Genesis chapter 3. It is the tragedy of listening to the wrong voice. Adam and Eve in the garden had perfect, unadulterated communion with God the Father and listened to His voice daily. His was the only voice they could hear. His was the only voice they wanted to hear. He spoke with authority and kindness. And Adam and Eve saw no contradiction in His authority and kindness coming together. They knew God's authority was kind because it was for their good. But soon after, another voice broke in. One that insisted that God was cheating them out of something better. It is the voice with the words that we hear so often today. Just break free from the pettiness of God's commands and then you will truly be free to find fulfillment and satisfaction and purpose in life. And instantly upon the belief of this lie and disobedience against God, Adam and Eve proved a hatred for God's authority and they hid in the garden. And ever since then, all of mankind has been listening to the wrong voice. Before a radical transformation takes place in the hearts of men through the gospel of Jesus Christ, we are all hiding outside the garden with our first parents. 
through a multitude of religions and social philosophies, there is just one message coming through loud and clear. The same as we read in Genesis 3 and verse 1. Did God really say? One of the most significant effects of the fall was mankind's unwillingness to listen to the voice of God. And most significant among the things which God has said that man is unwilling to hear is the law of God. So this brings us to a need to understand What is the law's purpose? What is the law's use in our life? Now, many will reject the need for God's law today. Many Christians simply ignore it. Consider many gospel presentations that you've heard. The offense of God's law being broken is sometimes completely removed. The law of God in general and the Ten Commandments specifically are almost seen as an embarrassment. Freedom and joy in Christ. Both of these things, great and true and wonderful realities, are often preached at the exclusion of law and judgment. The thundering of God at Mount Sinai is seen as abrasive and offensive to a sinful heart, and it is. And so in the end, we become more interested in finding ourselves rather than finding out who God truly is and what he requires. And so the gospel is presented in terms of purpose and meaningfulness rather than terms of reconciliation and forgiveness. But of those two categories, which is the language that is used in the Bible? particularly in the writings of Paul, what language is he using time and time again to describe the results of gospel transformation? We are forgiven for our sins. We are reconciled to God. Well, what is to be forgiven if there was no offense? What is to be reconciled if nothing was broken or marred or distorted? Our Baptist Catechism asks the question, what is sin? Very simple answer. Sin is any want of conformity unto or transgression of the law of God. 1 John 3, 4, sin is lawlessness. So it seems that in order to manufacture some superficial external evidences of success in the church, the tendency is to minimize what sin actually is or to redefine it altogether. Yet the scriptures are abundantly clear, sin is a breaking of God's law. And this is an interesting thing to consider because the confession of sin, or repentance is what we call it, is a requirement for our forgiveness. 1 John 1, 9, we love to say it, but do we pay attention to the first word? If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Conditional forgiveness. 
What was the constant statement of John the Baptist and then of Jesus? Repent, repent, repent. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent. Perhaps you feel the tension I'm trying to create here. We're begging a question, aren't we? What are we to confess as sin if we don't know God's law? In other words, if sin is lawlessness, we have to know the law to recognize, first, that we are sinners, and second, what is to be repented of. So biblically, we see the great need for the law of God. We will look at this in more detail as we look at the threefold use of God's law in just a little bit. But I want for all of us to be abundantly clear that the law of God is for us. And as I say that, I also mean that the Old Testament is for us. When I talk to a lot of Christians, I often get the feeling that most of us don't know exactly what to do with the Old Testament of the Bible. The common understanding seems to be that Israel in the Old Testament was under the law while Christians are under grace and the teaching of the New Testament. So essentially, 78% or so of our Bible is for nothing more than historical reference. So functionally, this understanding means that God has two plans of salvation, two ways to get to God. First is the Old Testament is works righteousness, that those in the Old Testament simply needed to fulfill the law of God While in the New Testament, we are under the gospel of grace and we have no requirements of fulfillment of the law of God. I can understand the tendency toward this with a cursory reading of Scripture, but it is false in every single way. Ironically, to come to this conclusion, one must ignore many portions of the New Testament. God first addressed His law to the Israelites at Sinai. Through Moses, Exodus 19 and verse 3, the Lord called to him out of the mountain saying, thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel. Now remember, the roots of the Israelites are in Abraham, the covenant that God made with Abraham. That in this, his descendants would become a great tribe and a great nation. Well, why them? Why them and not all the other people? He tells us in Deuteronomy 7, verses 7 and 8. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery. From the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. So it was nothing within them. It was not by any keeping of the law. It was simply because God decided to show his love to a people. To reveal his mercy. But God had a greater purpose still. Through the Israelites, God would reveal himself to the world and many would be blessed through them. God gave two ways to do this. First was that by His words, He would reveal His holy character through obedience that He expected of His own people. 
God would bless the nations through the Israelites as they knew, understood, and sought to be obedient to the word of God. Secondly, God would reveal his character by his actions, demonstrating his hatred for sin and his compassion for sinners. Now, many consider this law that was given to the Israelites to not be applicable to Christians today. We're going to look at that specifically in a couple of weeks. But I want you to consider this, Exodus 19, verses 5 and 6. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. Now notice the words in this passage, treasured possession, kingdom of priests, a holy nation. Why are those words significant to our understanding of the law's application in the lives of Christians today? but because they're the exact words that Peter uses as he's writing to Christians in the New Testament. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of the darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you have not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. God's Israel, uh, God's people, Israel, are united to God's people, Christian. There is no division. We are all God's people grafted into the same tree with the same roots. So God speaks to Christians in the same exact way He spoke to the Israelites. In other words, the commandments of God are what is expected of the people of God, whoever they are and wherever they are. God does not have one moral standard for certain people and another's moral standard for certain others. In fact, the law of God is not only required of those who are in Christ, but the law of God applies to all men. Deuteronomy 31, verses 12 and 13. Assemble the people, men, women, and little ones, and the sojourner within your towns, that they may hear and learn to fear the Lord your God, and be careful to do all the words of the, uh, all the words of the law, and that their children who have not known it may hear and learn to fear the Lord your God. Now the words, their children, refer to the sojourner within your towns. And notice nothing said about them becoming Jews or entering into the covenant relationship with God. It assumes that they remain foreigners. But they must, verse 13, learn to fear the Lord your God. Why? How? By learning the commandments of the God of Israel. So you see, the law of God has never been intended just for Israel. It has always been intended for all men everywhere. God commands the behavior that he loves to see 
and he forbids that which offends him. And we will look at that very detailed as we look through each of the Ten Commandments. Now, Jesus summarizes the moral law in two commandments. Love your God and love your neighbor. And these two commandments, he says, hang or depend all of the teaching of the Old Testament. All of the teaching of the prophets hang on these two commandments, which are simply a summary of the Ten Commandments. So God has set His law in place for Christians and non-Christians to keep. But with this one difference, He expects Christians to keep them and He provides all the help that is needed to do so. He has given the Christian new life in Christ and has put within us the Holy Spirit. On the other hand, God commands the world to keep his commandments, but he knows that they will not. They are unable to do so because they are not held captive by God. They are held captive by the bondage of their sins in the flesh. Now, something that is very important to understand as we consider the law of God as we consider its application to our lives in the 21st century as God's people, is to understand how it is written in the Scriptures. First, we need to consider the threefold division of the law and then discuss the law as a tool with three main uses. The laws of God through the Bible can be divided in three categories. Many of you know this. Uh, understanding the threefold division of God's law is the key to helping us read and understand the Old Testament. It is going to make a reading through the book of Leviticus a much easier and a much more enjoyable read if you know what it is talking about. So the first division of the law is the ceremonial law. Leviticus chapters 1 through 5 record the elaborate details of the sacrificial system of God. Generally, we can group all these sacrifices in two different categories. The first is the sacrifices of atonement. These are guilt offerings. This is where we see the blood of animals or we see scapegoats, those sorts of offerings that are made. Second are the sacrifices of thanksgiving, the thank offering, the offerings of grain or the tithe. Now, the animal sacrifices made for human faults could never replace the thankful life of the covenantal obedience and love for which God created humanity. It's not the offering in representative sacrifices, but the offering of oneself in thanksgiving that God delights in. The psalmist wrote, let them come into his presence with thanksgiving or enter his presence with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. So the animal sacrifices of atonement and the sacrifices of thanksgiving were never intended to be an end in and of themselves. In fact, in Psalm chapter 40, verses 6 through 8, the psalmist writes, in sacrifice and offering you have not delighted but you have given me an open ear. Burnt offering and sin offering you have not required. Then I said, Behold, I have come. In the scroll of the book it is written of me, I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. 
Now, far from downplaying the importance of the sacrifices, we need to understand that the psalmist is pointing to Christ. The one who is not only a guilt offering, providing the basis for our forgiveness, but also at last providing the covenantal faithfulness to the thank offering that humanity in Adam failed to yield. In other words, perfect obedience in thanksgiving to the Father was fulfilled in Jesus Christ. A perfect fulfilling of God's law as an offering of thanks unto God on our behalf. So the point of this is, and this is all laid out in the book of Hebrews, is that forgiveness is good, but obedience is better. God delights in forgiving our debts, but his deepest joy and requirement is the faithful love and obedience of the image-bearing people of God. This is why it's so important for us to understand that the gospel is not just the forgiveness of sins. Again, forgiveness is good. He made him to be sin who knew no sin. That is a great and glorious reality. But forgiveness without obedience is incomplete. This is why it is so important to understand the gospel is also the imputation, the crediting to our account of God's righteousness. The righteousness of Christ that we might become the righteousness of God. This completes the gospel. So the sacrifices of the ceremonial law of God did not cleanse the sinner. They were not cleansed of their guilt once and for all by the sacrifices of bulls and goats and rams. Forgiveness was temporary. The blood of the animals only served to roll the sins of the people forward onto the cross of Christ to delay the wrath of God. But beyond this... Such sacrifices offer to God that positive obedience that he requires of his covenant partners. Perfect obedience to the law of God. And here's the good news in all of that. And here's what we do with the ceremonial law of God. In Christ, both types of sacrifices come together. Not only is he the only qualified substitute for the guilt of sinners, the guilt offering, he is also the only one capable of rendering a life of thankful obedience in which God truly and fully delights, the thank offering. The writer to the Hebrews wrote in chapter 10, verses 5 through 10, Consequently, When Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body have you prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written for me in the scroll of the book. When he said above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are offered in accordance to the law. Then he added, Behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. 
And by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. That is good news. You see, it's not simply that Jesus is a better sacrifice than the temporary sacrifices of the ceremonial law. He is, but it's so much greater than that. The ceremonial law of God was a signpost that pointed forward to the once and for all sacrifice that was perfect. Obedience was fulfilled. Therefore, the ceremonial requirement of guilt and thank offerings was fulfilled. So the law was not simply abolished. It was fulfilled completely in Jesus. So what do we make of the ceremonial law of God? We recognize and understand that it was fulfilled fully and completely in Christ. So adherence to the ceremonial law of God is no longer a requirement of the people of God. And just for clarity, the ceremonial law of God also includes laws regarding dietary restrictions and hygiene. These were requirements for proper worship within the temple to point the people to lives of holiness. All of the ceremonial law of God has been fulfilled. We need not do it and the people of God will never return to it. As we read the ceremonial law of God, it should make us aware of the fact that God considers worship a very holy thing. And it should be clear to us in the ceremonial law how seriously God takes sin. And the ceremonial law should, above all else, make us thankful that Christ has fulfilled that which we could never fulfill and that the guilt offering and the thank offering could never fulfill. And so the ceremonial law has been fulfilled and we no longer need to look to it as something we adhere to. The second division of the law is the civil or judicial law of God. The ceremonial laws of God for the Israelites point forward to Christ as a great prophet and the great priest. The civil law of God for the Israelites point to Christ as the great king. And just as he does not cease to be our prophet or priest with the fulfillment of the ceremonial laws, neither does he cease to be our king with the fulfillment of the civil laws. Now also, like the ceremonial law, since Christ has fulfilled it, and as a result, we ought not go back to it, likewise, we need not seek to return to the Jewish theocracy. When we now have the reign of Christ's kingdom in his spiritual reign throughout, through the proclamation of the gospel on the earth. When Jesus dethroned himself in heaven to condescend to the earth, to become God in the flesh, he established his kingdom. So now we have two kingdoms present and active. First is the kingdom of the earth. The governing bodies, the political systems, the policies that we are all subject to in the land that we live in. This is a temporary kingdom. Likewise, and simultaneously, is running the second kingdom, the kingdom of Christ. This is an eternal kingdom. So through the civil law, God was giving us object lessons about the kingdom that was to come 
with Christ's ministry. As the kings of Israel were to drive out idolatrous nations, so the kingdom of, tr- of Christ will separate the sheep from the goats, the wheat from the weeds, and the end of the age. So the kingdom of Christ is not seen in its political, military, or social might, but it is advanced through the gospel of Christ, crucified for our sins and raised for our justification. So since we do not live under a theocratic kingdom where the judicial law of God is the rule of the land because the kingdom of Christ has been established, Christians are not obligated to keep the civil law of God. In fact, in the New Testament, it is strictly forbidden that we would return to the ceremonial and civil laws of the Old Testament. Because that would be a returning back to something that was intended to point forward to that which was to come in Jesus. But since Jesus has come, those laws have been fulfilled and we do not want to move backwards. We have something far greater in Christ. And so like the ceremonial law, the civil law of God is fulfilled in Jesus. And so that brings us to the third division, and that is the moral law of God. The moral law of God was instituted by God in the garden with Adam and Eve, and it continues to be in effect today. The New Testament reiterates the moral laws of the Old Testament, giving them fuller explanation and practical application in New Testament life. There are many who would like to claim that the Old Testament moral law of God is no longer applicable to Christians today. They would say if something is not stated clearly in the New Testament, then it does not apply to Christians. Uh, We will address this idea in a few weeks. I want to make it known that we believe very strongly that that is a false assumption. But this idea very clearly goes against the teaching of Scripture and the promise of the institution of the new covenant. Turn with me to Jeremiah chapter 31. Jeremiah 31 We'll look at verse 31 through 33. This is God's promise of the new covenant that would be established in Jesus. Jeremiah 31, beginning in verse 31, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with, the father, with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. This is very important. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God and they shall be my people. This is the promise of God. The new covenant would be instituted at the coming of Jesus Christ. Every person, even the most vile and wicked man that has ever lived, has the law of God written on his conscience according to the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 1 and 2. 
unbelievers suppress this truth in unrighteousness, but the very fact that the moral law of God is present in some way, shape, or form in every legal system to have ever exist is evidence of this very reality. This is why non-believers who have no basis for calling something right or wrong still have a problem with you stealing their car or taking their wife. But only believers have the law imprinted on their hearts in a way that through the new birth, we delight in God's law. This is the promise of God in the new covenant. We love God's law. And as the psalmist writes, we freely and joyfully meditate on his law day and night. So as we talk about the law of God, we are talking most specifically about God's moral law, which is summarized in ten words or ten commandments. The first four commandments of the ten are in our relationship to God. The last six are relationship to fellow man. The Ten Commandments are a summary statement about the character of God. They are telling of who God is. So as a people who are created in God's image, we are a people who are called to display godly character through a fulfilling of God's moral law. Something else that's worth noting about the ten words. The first four are what we are referring to when we talk about godliness. These are the four commandments Jesus is referring to in his summary command. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your mind and all your soul and all your strength. This is the most important. The last six commandments are what we are referring to when we talk about righteousness. These are the six commands Jesus is referring to in his summary command, love your neighbor as yourself. Now, additionally, notice that included in Jesus' summary and in the writing of God's law on the hearts, on the conscience of men, on the hearts of men, is included all ten commandments. The ten commandments are interrelated. They cannot and they shall not be separated. It's often assumed that in Romans 13.9, Paul releases us from an obligation to the law of God on the basis that all the commandments are summed up in one law, love your neighbor as yourself. But this actually proves the value of the law because a summary includes all the things it summarizes. For example, I might explain to you a cement slab foundation, two-by-fours, sheetrock, electrical wiring, nails, screws, carpet, tile, appliances, doors, windows, shingles. Oh, these are all parts. But a summary statement would be simply to call it a house. It's the same with God's law. So when Paul teaches that love is a summary of the law in Romans 13.9 and in Galatians 5.14 that love fulfills the law, he is teaching what Jesus did. That love does not cast away, but rather includes the moral law of God. Law and love were never intended to be divorced from one another. Think of it this way. How do I love the Lord our God with all my heart, mind, soul, and strength? I have no other gods before him. I do not worship idols. I do not use the Lord's name in vain. I keep the Sabbath holy. 
Well, how do I love my neighbor as myself? Honor my father and mother. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not lie. Do not covet. This is Paul's point in Romans 13. Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is a fulfilling of the law. So Paul is telling us, if you want to describe what love is, you will find it most accurately described in the moral law of God. And so the moral law of God is binding not only to Christians, but to all men everywhere. But it is most beloved by the people of God because it is written by him on our hearts at our new birth. Very quickly, to end, the three uses of the law. We need to understand the moral law as a multi-purposed tool. There are three uses of God's law. The first use of God's law is to function as, what Paul uses the language, of a schoolmaster. He explains this in Galatians chapter 3. It is a mirror that reflects back to us the perfect holiness of God and our very own sinfulness and our very own shortcomings. In the law, we see revealed to us that God's law is perfect. And he as the lawgiver is perfect since the law is a description of his character. And since God calls us to perfect obedience to His law, we recognize that we cannot, indeed, we will not uphold His holy and righteous standard. So the first use of the law of God is to teach us about God and about ourselves. The law gives us knowledge of our sin. That shows us our need for forgiveness. Our need for redemption, which leads us to repentance and faith in Christ. It is, amazingly, the law of God in this way is a grace of God. It points us to our need for the cross. Romans chapter 7 and verse 7, Paul writes, If it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, You shall not covet. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 8-11 through 11. Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the holy, unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God, which I have been entrusted. So the first use of God's law is to point out to us the holiness of God and the sinfulness of sin to point us to our need for forgiveness in Christ. Secondly, the law of God functions to restrain evil. While the law clearly does not change the hearts of men, since it is written on the conscience of every man, it functions to keep men from all the evil that we are capable of doing. 
you and I, in our sinful state, were we not restrained by the power of God and the law of God, would be the most tyrannical, hateful, evil people to have ever walked the earth. But because of God's law, there is some sense of moral stability and civility. The moral law of God has shown itself in the governance of every civilized people group, whether they've heard of God's law in the Bible or not. It is in our conscience. So while non-believers continue to walk in a life of depravity, they are restrained from greater evil because they have some sense of what is right and what is wrong. They have God's law on their conscience. Now, they prefer to live in complete opposition to it, but it functions as a restraint against that all, all that could be evil. So the second use of God's law is that it is a tool to restrain evil. The third and final use of God's law is that the law of God functions as a Christian's guide to good works. In other words, God's moral law tells a Christian what it means to please God. In John 14, 15, we read the words of Jesus when he said, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Now, this is perhaps one of the greatest shocks to the modern American evangelical heart. God does actually point to the reality of there being sure signs of one's regeneration. A person is not simply a Christian because they say they are any more than I'm a car if I say I am and hang out in my garage all day. There will be evidence of transformation. A summary of that transformation is this. Do you love the law of God? How can anyone know? Well, what are you doing with it? Are you finding ways to reject it and suppress it and cast it aside? Or are you seeking to fulfill it? Not as a means of your salvation, let's be very clear. Not as a way of gaining favor with God, but because you love God and want to honor and glorify Him. There's a huge difference. The great preacher Martin Lloyd-Jones said, If your so-called grace, which you say you have received, does not make you keep the law of God, you have not received grace. You may have had a psychological experience, but you have not received the grace of God. What is grace? It is that marvelous gift of God, which having delivered a man from the curse of the law, enables him to keep it and to be righteous as Christ was righteous. For he kept the law perfectly. We were created capable of being law keepers. But by our willful disobedience, we became lawbreakers. Remember that God first gave the law, written on the human conscience, not to drive people to Christ, because when God created man, they were not lost. Nor did God give the law to threaten them with civil penalties for nonconformity, because they were not criminals. The law was first given as a realistic expectation for human behavior because God had created Adam and Eve with moral excellence. And after the fall, of course, human beings are incapable of conforming to this law. Even if we've never physically abused another person, we've murdered them through gossip or slander in our hearts. 
Even if we've never stolen from our neighbors by slipping into their home at night, we've not done all that we could to protect their possessions. We may have never committed the physical act of adultery, but every time we lust after a man or a woman in our hearts, we are dishonoring and adulterating the marriage bed. Even Christians cannot conform perfectly to the moral law of God, nor should we ever approach it thinking that we can. Rather, we ought to approach the moral law of God as the perfect standard God requires as an expression of his moral character and live not in order to meet God's requirements, that's only achieved in Christ, but in order simply to obey God's commandments. In seeking to meet God's requirements, one sets out to earn God's favor by attaining his own self-righteousness. But by seeking to obey God's commandments, one sets out to obey a precious Heavenly Father simply because he's already been accepted as righteous and holy in Christ Jesus. So if you are here this morning as a Christian, rejoice. Christ Jesus has kept the law on your behalf. And now you are freed up to love the law and live in obedience to the law. He gives you that ability. He gives you that desire. If you are outside of Christ today, if you are not a Christian, the Bible speaks very clearly that you are an enemy of God. You are willfully and gladly rejecting and kicking against his law. It is written on your conscience, and yet you suppress the truth of it in unrighteousness. God is a just judge, and he will rightfully punish every sin ever committed on the face of the planet. He will do so in one of two ways. He has either done it for you in Christ Jesus, or you will pay the penalty on your own as you face the great judge on the day of judgment and spend an eternity in hell. That need not be the case. God the Father has sent Jesus the Son to live in perfect obedience to His law, to die as a sacrifice, a sacrifice of atonement, a sacrifice of thanks, to receive the full wrath of God that was due to you and due to me. He was buried and raised from the dead to prove that we too will be raised from the dead on the last day. And we will stand before God the Father as believers in Jesus Christ and called not guilty. Because Christ Jesus has fulfilled the law on our behalf. And so if you are outside of Christ, the scriptures call you to repent of your sin. Confess that you are a sinner and believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ for your salvation. That you need not be condemned by the law, but that you can delight in the law. I look forward to looking more in depth at the law of God with each of you. That as we progress in this series through God's law, that we can see in our own hearts where we tend to not desire and not love the law of God, and that he would bring us into conformity, again, not to earn his favor, 
but to bring him greater glory and delight, that we would progress in godliness and righteousness for his glory and the joy of his people. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so very, very much for your word. Thank you, first and foremost, God, that you have revealed yourself to us in your word. That we need not wonder what it is to worship you, that we need not wonder what it means to do what pleases you, because you have clearly revealed that to us. I thank you also, Lord, that you have given us difficult texts and difficult doctrines to work through, to wrestle with. Things to challenge our hearts and challenge our minds that we would be all the more enamored with Christ. I pray, O God, that you would give us a greater love for your law, a greater delight in your commandments, a greater desire to fulfill all that you have commanded. Help us to not do it out of a sense of self-righteousness, a desire to bring ourself some kind of favor, but rather out of a willingness and a want to bring you glory. Remind us always, O Lord, in your law that we are not perfect, that we are completely unable to fulfill your legal requirements, but that we can rejoice that Christ Jesus has fulfilled your legal requirements on our behalf. We thank you that he was a once for all sacrifice. We thank you that he has established his kingdom and we thank you that he lived a perfect and morally upright life that we too can walk in his righteousness and stand before you on the day of judgment, cleansed, redeemed, and called not guilty. You are good to us, and we thank you, and we praise you, and we ask, Lord, that you receive our worship with gladness. In Jesus' name, amen.